0: I try to be careful with superlatives, but this truly is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever recorded. Eric Norcross, uh, who is the host of the Eric Norcross podcast, an author, a filmmaker, and an artist all around, brings the freight and so much more in this interview. We discuss the mindset of marketing your art in a way that I have struggled to get at in any previous interview. And so I'm so excited that he has such a cogent and clear way of presenting his thought process about the importance of art and why it is okay to make money as an artist So please enjoy my interview with Eric Norcross. Hey, I'm the reluctant book marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance, because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. Sometimes it's embarrassing to try to raise money. But sometimes, you have expenses, and they're starting to pile up. For as little as $3 a month, you can offset the cost of making this podcast. And so, the question I would encourage you to ask yourself is, has this podcast been worth a cup of coffee to you this month? If yes, then click in the show notes to my Patreon, And sign up for the $3 supporter level of my Patreon to offset the cost of this podcast. It would mean the world to me. And, hey, maybe it would mean the world to you.
1: You know, I've always considered myself a writer first and foremost. It informs everything I do. Uh, The one I'm most desperate about is filmmaking. And, and there's a big difference between being desperate about writing and desperate about filmmaking. When you go on writing Twitter, there's a lot of desperation to getting published. I don't care if somebody else publishes me or if I publish myself, hmm. that's probably one of the reasons that uh, I don't engage in as many conversations on there uh, as I probably could. When it comes to filmmaking though, I desperately want approval. Like I want other people's money so that I can make my movies. Um, and, and, one of the interesting things that just happened this morning was I finished the second galley this month for two books coming out in August, uh, autumn. Okay. Uh, this galley is for a book that, that is a mix of mixed media artwork and verse, some essays and some of the work in it, like some of the visual art in it is a mix of, Polaroid photos that have been digitized and Photoshopped into some sort of trippy visual thing to convey a mood. Something you might see on a mood board actually. And another one is just a screenshot of an old eight millimeter video that I shot back in 2002. And there was a vibe to that. So I was Photoshopping that. Now these are ideas that I'm not going to write about because there's nothing really to right. They're just a mood. Mm -hmm. and this same logic applies when I decide that this story is better served as a screenplay or that story is better served as a short story uh and you know I, I I remember I sent you two actually uh and the reason I sent those to you was because mm-hmm. I don't write short stories. The fact that I even got those out of me yeah, uh, impressed me to a point where I'm like, oh, so some of my stuff can apply to this format. Mm. I'm very experimental and I'm very much a, a soul searcher in regards to creativity. That's why it's such a mixed
0: bag. Your sort of indifference is unique and it's interesting to me. Talk a little bit more about why you don't care whether you publish yourself or someone else chooses to publish you.
1: Well, the reason is because when it comes to writing, 80% of what I do is of uh, it's, a, it's a sort of form of soul searching. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I'm not even going to turn out something that I consider publishable. Uh, when I do, I if I come up with a story or a novella or poetry collection, and I'm like, I'd like other people to see this at that point, I'm going to want to be in complete control. I consider myself more of an entrepreneur from that standpoint. Okay. How do I take this thing and turn it into product? And I honestly, I think more creative people should be entrepreneurs in this regard. I think it's, It's better for the future of the business. If everybody start thinking like a publisher when creating think like the artist, when it becomes time to turn that work into a product, then you start thinking like a publisher. Okay. What do I got to do to make this presentable to somebody other than me and my beta readers? And that's something I advocate for in my podcast. Like that is the number one thing. And when when I have authors on who are published traditionally, like next season, my next season starts in September, and my debut episodes could be with Avi, who's one of the most prolific published authors on the planet. I mean, he had, he released two books just last year alone. Hmm, I think he has something like 80 or 90 on the market. That's crazy. Uh, He doesn't self publish, he doesn't need to. Um, And when I, would ask him technical questions about the publishing process. Do, do, they evidently have to be cut out. They, were have, they had to be cut out in season one when I had them on and they're gonna to have to be cut out now because he just doesn't know. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so I think though, it's important for young authors to know because that's the only way we're gonna be able to open the industry up. Cause right now, you know, I, I live in New York. I am surrounded by industry people mm-hmm. and it is one of the most closed off environments yeah what any art really whether you want to be a gallerist an artist in the gallery scene if you want to be in film if you want to be in publishing all those fun stuff that could pay off if you do it really good that's all who you know and and the only way we're going to sort of reset the industry is if and this is something i advocated for in my mfa program it's something i complained about in film school. And the reason I say advocated for versus complained about is because I was so young when I went to film school, I didn't know it's something I had to advocate about. Yeah. But I did complain, like, why aren't you teaching us how to raise funds? Why aren't you teaching us how to get insurance or how to drop contracts? Like, you should be doing this. this. is what film school should absolutely be.
0: Yeah.
1: In my MFA, I'm like, why aren't you teaching us how to build out a galley, how to do page layout, how to do marketing, how to find an audience? And no one really had an answer. The only the only programs that do that are the ones that are so hard to get into that they're they're on everyone's top 5 wish list of MFA programs. But of course, every program should be teaching you this stuff. And so ultimately, my podcast is to take up some of that slack and and maybe ask published authors those questions. And you're doing the same thing. I've been listening to your show for the, most of the summer now and It makes sense and it's remarkable that so few of us are actually talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm excited listening to you because that is exactly what I try to share with anybody who's listening into my show right now is the importance of advocating for your work as an asset. I've been using words that I think probably sound really harsh to most artists' ears, and I'm doing it on purpose. And I'll, I'll be honest some of the some of the listen uh, data that I'm getting on my podcast from those episodes is that people don't want to hear that. And I think it's uh, an uphill battle, but it's one I'm going to keep fighting because I'm really passionate about the idea. One that while we are making art, our art should be able to give us the opportunity to live on it. Not everybody wants that. And that's why I wanted to have that, that starting conversation with you about you don't care how you publish, because there's one way that you could walk off of that particular razor's edge. And it leads to uh, nobody is going to give uh, flying crap what you're doing because you don't uh, niche your message. You, like, oh, I'll self-publish if if I do whatever, if somebody finds it cool. But that's definitely not what you were saying. What you were actually saying is that your art is something that you're really passionate about. And so you see it as being pretty likely that you'll self-publish because there's not a defined marketplace for it right now. Um, and that you also want to have complete creative control and you want to sell that product to uh, the people who need to have it. So you're. It sounds to me like you're very much aware of having an audience, but you know that it might be a really tough climb to get into any kind of traditional situation because of the type of art you're creating. Have I have I uh, misinterpreted you in any ways? There. You're interpreting me just fine. One
1: of the things I would I would mention though is doing it this way. It's hard because. Essentially, we're breaking paradigms by doing it this way. Uh, And we're also not really falling back. There's no fallback. There's no safety net. When you're an entrepreneur, there's no safety net. And so there's a, a mentality shift that will happen in this process where you're going from the mentality of an employee. And if somebody else publishes you, you're essentially you become an employee. And while it's very safe money for the most part, you know, you'll get your your deposit, and then you'll get residuals later on once they make back that deposit. That's a pretty safe format Mm -hmm. if you can get it. Uh, But when you do it the the way of Eric Norcross, you're moving from an employee mindset to an entrepreneur mindset, and that is freaking horrifying to anybody who's only ever worked for someone else. Uh, when I started my first business in 08, it was coming off several years of working retail. I've only ever known that Mm -hmm. biweekly paycheck. I've only ever Mm -hmm. been paid by the hour. And it was was so scary uh, to have to get paid monthly, to have to reorient all my bills monthly. And then later on when money really starts coming in, it's no longer monthly, it becomes quarterly. Uh, And um, that's really, really scary for people who are, still have monthly bills yeah, to pay absolutely you know what I'm saying? and so the, there's a mental shift that people have to be prepared for to do it that way uh, but i think that it and i know that this is kind of breaking this out into like grand things but if we're going to change the economic system system in this country whether you're an artist or any kind of entrepreneur if you want to open a work in a restaurant screw yeah. it own a restaurant like that's the only way we're going to shift the economic situation in this country because
0: obviously working for other people just doesn't work. You know, uh, I love what you're saying. And I think that it's really true. I think that if you look at, and, and, I, I do have a vision for how this conversation is going, so do bear with me if you're listening, and you're like, "Well, when did we switch to to an economics podcast?" But um, so there's a there's a, a McDonald's all over the place. There's a Starbucks all over the place, and they're able to kind of not be as savvy anymore because of how big they've gotten, and they can they can have a store that just doesn't get a lot of business. You'll see them. What you're talking about is somebody saying, I want to take ownership. I want to know how to do this. And I want to open a local coffee shop that is able to survive in a very competitive world. It would be so hard to do that in New York. And granted, lots of people do it. Um, if you work for an independent coffee shop, your experience of being an employee in that case is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes much more pleasant than if you become part of the machinery of working for McDonald's, of working for Starbucks. I think what you're advocating for, I'm just adding a tiny bit of nuance too, is that there are people out there who are very well made for the traditional publishing industry. Um, I had a guest on, Lena Crow. She's a phenomenal Writer. She's a good artist. Um, She doesn't produce a ton of work and is completely uh, unwilling to learn how to market herself. And that's like, she just said that straight up on my podcast. And I was kind of like, wow, this is a show about marketing, but you take what you're given. And I realized that there are people like her that she still has art that I want to read, that I want to consume, that I want to enjoy. And so there is a place for her, but she will always be more of an employee and she's going to ride the highs and the lows of that. You and I are are saying there's a way that you can be the entrepreneur. You can be the artist who also has an asset to offer uh, your ideal reader, your person. And that is such a different mindset that the, the Lainas of the world are never going to buy in. But there's a lot of people right now who are uncommitted because they're either scared or what? I mean, what are the other options? Why are people not buying into this mindset? Do you think? Uh it's a lot of work.
1: It's a lot of work that's going to take away from we already have in the 21st century the most cumbersome yep. lives. Even in during the pandemic, when nothing was going on, it was so stressful. And that's really the big thing. But let's step back to something about when did this become an economics podcast? This has always been an economic subject. The arts are the number one economic subject of both of our lives. And whether some of the listeners are interested in the business side or not, uh, if you're writing a book and you have the intent of getting out there, this subject of of economics is incredibly important. Uh, And yeah, I just, uh, that's it. Nobody's gonna listen. To, I just feel like nobody's gonna listen to a podcast about publishing and and writing books if if they're not mm-hmm. genuinely interested in how do you get your books out there and how do you function as a creative mm-hmm. professional uh, and on the authors who just will never ever do it this way. Yeah, that's great as long as you're happy. I'm a guy who just wants to do things my way and and find. A way
0: that works for me, and that's it. You you mentioned uh, in terms of why people maybe aren't embracing this entrepreneurial uh, mindset that that we're talking about, and. Yes, I agree. It's a ton of work. Talk to me a little bit about the confusion of the work though, because I know that you are well-versed in, in this area. Um, you didn't launch your podcast, uh, to 10,000 raving fans. I didn't launch my podcast to, uh, 50 raving fans and you have a YouTube channel. Uh, you have a bunch of work that is accessible to people. And I know that you are not getting massive, uh, influx of people consuming it. So I want to know about the confusion because I have it. And I'll be completely transparent and say, sometimes I don't know what work I should be doing to get more people putting their eyes on the podcast or the books or things like that. Um, That's a real barrier to entry. I think too, of being an entrepreneur, what's your experience of that?
1: Everything that's out there is through, is a trial and error thing. Even the podcast episodes Last season, I introduced the UFO subject on the podcast, which has absolutely nothing to do with my brand or everything I'm trying to achieve with the podcast, but it has everything to do with one, my secret, my super open secret obsession with UFOs. And two, I need to build a a subscribership on YouTube. I really want to do that. You know, I've been on YouTube on and off since the year it was founded in 2005. And I've really not made any headway with it, and I think that's because I wasn't doing that trial and error thing where I just throw everything out there and see what works. The the UFO thing it worked. I got hundreds of subscribers out of that, much more than any other uh, arts episode of the podcast. Uh, does that mean it's a, a UFO podcast now? Absolutely not. Does it mean I'm going to do them, keep doing them from time to time? Yes, it does. Because if that if the next UFO episode can get me hundreds of more, that's great too. Um, and those are also the people who stick around the longest I found but then there's also home video stuff on there there's archival stuff there's you know it's it's a mixed media channel everything is is there for a different audience and as I say in the intro of the channel like go by the playlists because if you're only interested in the podcast there are playlists for the podcasts if you're only interested in my film work there are playlists for that too um And everything, everything has a different audience. Uh, One of the, one of the interesting things you brought up was that I am in New York, the most competitive market in the world for pretty much everything. It's probably the second most competitive for film with LA being the first. Uh, I'm not involved in either of those at the industry level. So being in New York, isn't really that scary to me in that regard. I function out of New York as a base to get out to specific groups of people elsewhere. In fact, my New York centric material is the least popular of all my material. (laughs) Like they, New York does not want to hear what I have to say about them as a transplant for Maine, but people back in Maine are interested in what my experiences have been, being a transplant. So that's it, it. When, when you talk about like finding a niche, uh, I didn't come to New York to be successful in New York. I came to New York to find a niche as a transplant. And, of course, this is a soul-searching sort of realization that I've had over the past few years. My story is exactly that. A guy who came to New York expecting a, a highly creative community, a unified community, not finding it. And most of my stories are built around that. And some of them work as films. Some of them work as creative writings. And some of them work as just discussions on the podcast. And I don't see the podcast as any different from any other medium I'm working in. I just do it, put it out there, see if it sticks. And if it doesn't
0: stick, pretend I never did it. (laughs) (laughs) Pretend you never did it. I I like that. I, I, you know, for me, um, and this is kind of hearing everything you're talking about with the UFO episodes and trying different things and, and going on this journey of discovery. Um, I started out and early listeners of my podcast probably remember some episodes that I've actually taken down because I just felt like they were so far off brand. I, I needed to kind of streamline the message for anybody who got to really go into the, the backlist. Um, I was doing a lot of that because I got really scared. My first idea with this podcast was that it was going to be kind of like the voice that that TV show with singers who come on and they audition. And then the listenership actually votes by the number of downloads that I have, who they think uh, tells the most compelling story. And then I would actually publish that as a publisher. And I thought that that was a really fun idea. I didn't realize how much reach I would need in order to do that. So they do. They have a TV show coming out uh, called America's Next Great author um, that is using the same concept now that it's going to be very much like the voice. They're going to have coaches and that kind of thing. I don't know if it'll get off the ground or not. Um, It's a cool idea that blends a lot of what we've been talking about of giving um, authors a chance to come up through multiple medias at the same time and negotiate building a brand by being on screen and all of that. Um, The reason I mention that is because, the show has had to, my show has had to transform. That includes changing the name of my show. That includes changing from doing more guest interviews to doing a lot more monologue style episodes. Really had to crawl through this, this period of exploration to say, what am I going all in on? And like you were talking about with UFOs, it's something you're passionate about. What I found for myself was there's a couple of things I just know, because I've done them in my life and enjoyed them a lot. And that's real estate and fitness. And both of those things matter to me. And I see naturally the combination that happens with being a writer. And so I'm starting to lean really heavily into those metaphors to try to help people make connections in different ways. Um, so I do want to stay on that topic because that's part of the confusion we're talking about is you're, you're saying, let's throw it at the wall. Let's see what sticks, but you're also getting some feedback on how your human DNA, your, like, your makeup of who you are is the blueprint for making all of your art and your podcast. Um, and so I, I. the question I'm still trying to get at is, how frustrating is it for you to not know what's going to work? And how often have you bumped into the thought of like, I need to quit. I'm just not making any headway.
1: I never quit. Uh, there are projects that will go stagnant, but it's not a deliberate thing. It's more a uh, I might be a quarter of the way through a first draft of something and be like, you know what? This doesn't resonate with me as much as it did when it was just an idea that I came up with about biking. You know, Or uh, I had this project that I, that's been going on 20 years now. It's, it started out as a screenplay, then it became a teleplay, then it became a graphic novel, then it became a hybrid novel graphic novel. And I don't know what, what it's supposed to be yet but I know it's a good story. And I know that I can, that I have a personal stake in it because it's about some relatives that I never got to meet because they died before I was born and there's a time travel component to it. And I know that that kind of story, not only would work on the market, it it would also just be really rewarding if I could figure out what the final format of this thing is going to be, but I don't stress out about it. I don't, I think, I think, the most stressed out I get is when I'm actually um, in sort of the final stretch of putting something out. So maybe something with the galleys, keep the formatting is slightly off. And I don't know why it looks right in, in, in design, but then when I export the PDF, it's all kablooey, you know, like that's the stuff that stresses me out. But when it comes to creativity and putting stuff out there, I never stress out about it because no matter what you do, people are going to receive it the way they're going to receive it. They're going to react the way they're going to react. And once it's out there, it's out there. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, but yeah, I love that thing you said earlier, that I am the blueprint for everything. That's exactly it. The podcast is me. The films are me. The, the writing is me. And if you really want to know me, it's all out there. I have, I have no secrets, uh, much to the detriment of my family. <laughs> There are no secrets. Um, But it's it's
0: what it is. Yeah, I I relate to that. I was, um, we had the uh, Burke County Fair here in town last night. And so uh, my kids did the tractor pull, and we're kind of hanging out in this area having a few drinks and is the, night, is the night goes on, like I become more comfortable with strangers and I find myself telling stories about you know, who I am and the things that are interesting to me. And, and I wake up this morning and I'm thinking back over those conversations and I'm like, well, maybe I'm embarrassed that I told a stranger these things about myself. But I realize. This is what we do as artists and getting over that sense of shame or embarrassment when we share things. We're doing a tightrope act here of trying to share as vulnerable as we can, as vulnerably as we can in order for people to Be able to dive deep because that's what has to happen for this to transfer over. We were talking about metaphors earlier. Um, UFOs possibly serving as a metaphor for you at some point, real estate serving as a metaphor for me, but also like the brokenness of my life is a metaphor for what it is to be an artist. And this, this mindset game that we have to play to be serious entrepreneurs about it. That is really challenging. You have to accept all of the goodness that you bring to the table and all of the flaws Talk to me a little bit about your perceived flaws and and how those become potential hindrances to moving forward and succeeding in getting your art out to the community. I'd say there's no real filter beyond the creative,
1: the creative sort of process. And that's that I'm willing to write and talk about basically any truth. Um, And you know, my mother who I haven't talked to since like 2016, the election cycle actually, so you can, you probably know why, but uh, she still reads my work. She secretly buys it and reads it and she'll post on Facebook, which um, I'll get sent screenshots since, because we're not Mm -hmm. connected on Facebook either. Relatives will send me screenshots of what she writes about my work. And there's a short story I'd Mm -hmm. sent you called Fritz. She read that thing. At least I'm pretty sure this is the one she read. Uh, We we don't know for sure because she never titles them. But she called me evil for writing it. That she's sure that I was possessed by some demonic entity because I wrote this story. And, you know, it is what it is. You grow up with a mom who's really, really, like, just out there Mm -hmm. when it comes to religion. It's going to happen. But also what's going to happen is... I'm going to take that diatribe and all of the comments that her friends posted, and I'm going to turn it into mixed media art. If that mixed media artwork derived from her Facebook conversation railing against me and my story, calling me evil, ever gets out into the world. Um, Yeah. Who knows? I I could make things worse for me, or I could, I don't know. I don't know what the alternative is because I think in terms of her reactions For stuff like that so um one one of the one of the other things too is I am such a a purist when it comes to art that when it comes to collaborative art especially my film work I find it very difficult to budget for the Mm. things I should be budgeting for so I might cheap out when it comes to the budget for hiring Mm. certain people only to have that Kick me in the ass later on. Oh, I don't have enough to actually finish this aspect right now. So oh, we're delayed another six months or something, but that's
0: all technical. I I do think it does. I mean, there's a, there's a conversation to have possibly uh, here in a moment, but I want to stick with family because family is a, is an interesting piece of our mindset as well in terms of being artists. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a similar experience. Uh, My, my father and his wife are missionaries, uh, and they have very firm beliefs about the world. And I think I've not lived up to so many of their expectations about who I should be. Uh, I can just list all kinds of things that they would disagree with. And I've been fairly transparent, especially when I guest on other podcasts, I I often will talk about how family issues, uh, as well as friends have really impacted my, uh, my writing, my artistry, and self-confidence I think that's the worst thing is even though you're able to see very clearly that somebody in your family is means no good to you and, and doesn't want you to flourish, you still feel tied to their opinions and it can make it difficult to do the work so cutting them off sometimes seems like a, a decent choice even though it's pretty heartbreaking. Do you feel that you have benefited from making that that cut with your mom? Or is it something that you still struggle with? I mean, I I know you struggle with it to a degree, but how much is it a day to day type of thing for you?
1: I mean, moving to New York was really the first version of it, though. She visited me a few times and we kept in touch and I visited there. um, It was really after 2016 or 2017 that it was the actual cutoff. And it wasn't just me. It was my sister, too. Uh, The the only one of our siblings is my little brother who's still um, tied to her. And that's, from what I understand, that's largely economic um, because he has child support. But my sister and I both did it simultaneously without knowing we were doing it. I did it because it was so clear that, um, you know, I'd gone back to school. I revisited my higher education in my mid-30s. So I got my BA and my MFA back to back between the ages of 34 and 37 or 38. I don't know the exact math, but um, it was during that time when, when all this happened and there was a lot of passive aggression about it. There's a lot of passive aggression about my life's direction, the stuff I wanted to commit, commit to, Uh, you know, a lot of times in New York, somebody will move there, try to go into the arts when they would go back to school, it's usually the fallback. When I went back to school, it was the strength in what I was already doing. And it wasn't very well received. It was like, oh, you're still gonna do this even though you're fast approaching 40 and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually doing really well. Like I make more money in a year than you've ever made in like three years. Like it's not safe, like it's it's not bi-weekly but it adds up to being quite substantial. This was all pre-pandemic. That's no longer the case, but that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, it was just, there's you come to realize, and this is what my sister realized too by going to therapy. Blood only matters to a certain extent. And I know there are going to be some very sensitive people listening to this. Uh, and everyone has their own life experiences. If you love your mother and you've got a great relationship with her, I'm fucking jealous. I'm like mad jealous of you. But we didn't have that. Uh, And growing Mm -hmm. up, it was hard. Growing up with the hard people is hard. And at a certain point when we're approaching middle age, we just want peace. We want peace of mind. We want peace to be able to do this, what we want to do in our lives without criticism uh, and without passive Mm -hmm. aggression. And that's what we elected to do. So really the person, the only person in my family that I have the strongest relationship is with is my sister. And that's really because we both came to this simultaneously while living Mm. many states apart and not talking to one another. Uh, And it's funny too, because she she reconnected with me after I wrote a novel about her. I, I I released a book called Objects and Giants, which was just a metaphor for sort of how her relationship with her husband, who was my best friend in high school, kind of tore up the friendship and tore us apart as siblings and it was just kind of my feelings about the whole thing and she identified herself in it she identified her husband in it Uh, and um she ended up right well my mother ended up writing me saying that i shouldn't be writing about Hmm. people i know that i shouldn't be writing things so personal which i mean you you know somebody's not a writer when they're saying don't write from a personal standpoint but my sister writes me a week after and she goes, I don't know what mom told you, but I think this is the best thing you've That's written at, up to this point. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And ever since then, we've been doing these things where she drives down from Maine and I drive out from New York and we meet halfway in Massachusetts and have a, have a brunch. Yeah. And it's just a day trip. And it's called our every quarter we do it. It's nice. called the quarterly brunch. That's that's great. Yeah.
0: yeah. I have a, a closer relationship with my, my sister, uh, my biological sister in very similar reasons. You know, she was uh, written off by, by my dad largely. And I mean, it's so funny too. You, you've probably had this experience, but um, when you are deeply religious, you find different words to describe what you're doing. So, you know, it's that somebody's living in sin. And so you can't support that behavior. That's what's going on. Or, um, you know, they they'll say, like, I'm sorry, you feel that way. If you have any qualms with the way they treat you, there's just these special little word Olympics that they do to uh, throw the blame back on you. So that can be really frustrating just from a human perspective.
1: And that's yeah, that's sort of that passive aggression that I was talking about. And the funny part, too, is like, I don't know if you ever saw that movie St. Almost Fire, but they'll also do this thing. In that movie, they got this thing that some of the people back home will do, uh, where they whisper words, (laughs) sin, you're living in
0: sin, you know? (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I've been living in sin for like 15 years. I'm enjoying it, actually. For the first time in my life, I kind of feel like I have meaning, (laughs) so I guess... That's a a whole philosophical rabbit hole. Um, I do want to make a small shift because we we talked right up to the line of the economics of being an entrepreneur. Uh, We have to make money on what we're doing in order to do it. Uh, I found myself and I reached out to uh, a podcaster that I'm hoping she will guest on my show. I have no business being on hers, but I think she might benefit from being on mine and has something definitely to share. Uh, Recently, she went looking for a job again, and she shared that on her last episode. And this whole past week, I have been uh, secretly kind of looking into land flipping again, because I'm not making the kind of money I want to. And I literally started just taking a list down of the things that I'm sacrificing that need to be attended to. So uh, a vehicle that we need. And I'm tired of dipping into savings to take care of this. I've got the money for it. I, I quit my job to to focus full-time on this, knowing that even in a worst case scenario, I had 36 months of, of time to build a ramp, but it's going a little slower than I want it to. Um, I need to fix the upstairs. I need to insulate the roof. I need to finish a room so I can get my kids spread out. Like there are a lot of things on my list at this moment mm-hmm. that I can't attend to. And so I was like, if I just start like doing 20 hours of real estate a week again, I can bring in the money for this kind of stuff. But then I knew the moment that I do that, my mindset will go all haywire and I'll think I can't make money doing this. So I'm putting my stake in the ground and telling you guys right now and you that I'm not going to do it, but boy, do I want to right now. Talk to me about the money aspect because it it does funny things to your brain.
1: Right. So you have to do what you have to do to get by in the moment. And so one of the things I do is I service other podcasters From a technical standpoint, I direct the video portions of podcast shows, and I also direct videos just in general. Um, It's not what I want to do, really. You know that. I want to write and make films. That's completely different than making video, but it is what it is. I've invested in it early on, so I have the ability to do it. Um, When it comes to making money off the books and off the movies, um, I've resigned to the fact that it's more of a side hustle at this point, um, it's, it's, it really is too for a lot of people who are selling a lot more. And, and a great example of that is the self-help industry. Uh, I used to work on a podcast prior to the pandemic. It, it was all about entrepreneurship and self-help and a lot of the people on there were New York Times best-selling authors. And there's, they didn't need to do anything else with the number of books they were selling, but they never regarded it as the main thing they were doing. It was always the album they put out to yeah. promote the concert where they really made their money. Yeah. was giving talks and giving advice to organizations. Like they'd come in for like a big corporate employee day or something. Uh, and I, I think that if you really want to, if anybody really wants to make money at this, they got to start looking at the publication more as an asset that is part of that bigger platform. Uh, And I don't know what that means for fiction writers, but one of the things I've been personally thinking about is academic conferences. Uh, I used to give talks on the sociopolitical parallels in science fiction. I'd love to do that again with what I know now, because I know a lot more now and there are people who can get who get paid to do stuff like that. They get flown out to, to places. Uh, and, and that's one way to sort of use your creative writing as an asset to mm-hmm. something else. Because altogether, it's the platform that makes the money. Yep. It's not just the book. It'd be great if it was just the book, it would yep. make life a lot easier. But like I said, we're talking about entrepreneurship, which means you're wearing a bunch of different hats and your income is going to come from a bunch of different places and your tax year is just going to be an absolute (laughs) shit show. Uh, And But it's a good thing because- it means you're doing something more yeah. than what
0: else. Well, are. I, I will. I will say I am one of the luckiest people I know for a lot of reasons. But uh, my my wife is. Uh, uh, she didn't quite get her CPA, but she was an accountant, and so I'm really fortunate. I do. I have no clue how to file taxes. I kid you not. I just every year that's something that she handles, and um, I'm really really fortunate for that. Uh, I love what you're saying, and I think that it's worth staying there for just a minute because. Yes. uh, As artists, we are going to have to piecemeal together our income, but I want to say from a cautionary standpoint, one of the worst things that you can do. And I think in some ways you actually almost are doing this. So if you take uh, offense to what I'm saying, let's talk about it, but to be a coach. Sure. don't go and be a writing coach don't go and offer your services as an editor um, anything where you suddenly become an employee because don't like people people will try to convince you know you're your own boss you get to pick your own clients but when you become an editor for somebody you are their employee and you want to just think of your time as precious. So you are talking about speaking events. Those are actually really great way to make a lot of money for a small amount of time. Um, as much as you can lean heavily into those kind of things. I think that right. the mindset piece here is, is don't trade your time for money. Um, figure out, figure out ways that those things are independent. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with you. And I, you know, one of the things I always advocate for, especially on the podcast is, um, you know, time and mental yes. power is everything. I call it burning Beautiful. neurons. I don't want to burn neurons for something that that belongs to somebody else. If I could do it for something that I'm doing, and so I don't take yeah. editing gigs ever. I will only beta read if I'm genuinely interested yes. in what somebody's writing. Uh, I think I did it with one person on Twitter yeah. so far because <laughs> I was curious as to what they wrote. But um, and and they ended up like writing a really stellar book. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was. it's not always mm-hmm. going to be the case, though. But my reading list is huge. I don't have a lot of time to mm-hmm. read other people's work. And even in a place like New York, where the living is high, reading and editing and copy editing, those jobs don't pay anything. I don't know about the rest of the country, but here yeah. they, they yeah. don't pay anything. And so
0: I've been offered a lot of those types of gigs and some ghostwriting gigs too. And I just don't take them because it's not worth it. Yeah, it's such an important thing to to make sure that you're not getting into that. Because again, it's it's the same thing I was talking about with land investing is there's a real uh, just part of you that wants the security that money can bring. And when there's something you're comfortable doing, uh, you will gravitate toward it. And so that's where I want to start to wind this conversation down is you've seen me through Twitter, pretty much anybody I talk to has engaged with me on Twitter. It's been a very rich piece of, of land for me to mine. Um, and I've made some good friendships. I've made some good relationships, some good business connections um, but I'll be the first to confess. It's a daily thing for me right now. Am I giving my highest value by being on Twitter or do I need to get out of my comfort zone and find the next rock to jump across the stream on? I don't know the answer to that to you today. I know that um, things are are starting to stagnate a little bit with listen numbers on my podcast. Um, And I've been doing a little trial and error to like be a little more salesy and I'm not seeing as much return on that as I want. So I want to get your perspective on uh, where are some areas that you feel like you have settled into a comfort zone that maybe you need to reinvigorate and try something new to maybe get a bigger reward.
1: The answer to that question is every single platform yeah. I'm on. uh, Once you fall into a comfort zone for any one of them, what you're doing is going to be outdated yes. by the end of the day. I've already seen a, a, a slowdown with Twitter. The things that got me my first 500 mm-hmm. uh, followers yep. no longer work because um, people become hip to it and they do the yes. same thing. And uh, it, it's the, it's the age old thing. Once some way, once somebody figures out a way to raise money, that yes. door is automatically closed. And it's the same thing on social media. Uh, once you figure out how to get a few Instagram followers, it only yep. worked for a couple of days. Um, and so really all the platforms you should be constantly trying to reinvent. And, uh, it's not just seeing what's working for other people because what's working for them isn't always going to work for them too, but it's also just being a leader yourself, trying to, trying to experiment with things. That's why, that's why, again, I throw everything out there. I don't know what will work. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, um, but when they do, you do it as long as you milk yeah. that as long as you can. Yes, you do. <laughs> then you try mm-hmm. to do the next thing. Uh, and that, of course, isn't just marketing and social media and presence. That also goes for creativity. Um,
0: you're not going to write the same book twice. You're not going to make the same film twice. Even, even by the way, with the same characters, if you write a sequel, you're still not writing the same book a second time. And and people's demise comes by trying to do that. So.
1: Oh yeah, the, well, this book I'm dropping in October, "Saratoga Landmine." Great title. Thanks. This this book is about a guy going around with this magical power, and it's a horror thing. He's able to remove people's free will and get them to do whatever they want, and it's totally horrific. Uh, these aliens have to intervene to stop him. Um, of course, they nah. don't. They team up with him because you know, in my universe, <laughs> aliens are bad. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it's just, it's this horrific thing. And I've already got the next three books planned out, and none of them yeah. are about him. The next one's about actually, find this funny. It's about this investigator who's in, she's investigating real estate transactions in that's rural, great. Pennsylvania. Um, but what it has to do with the first, um, sort of playing that close to the chest. And then the third book is about somebody completely different and telling a completely different story. And the fourth book, that as well. And you don't know how they relate to each other until
0: probably the last third of it. That's fun. So in, in closing, basically, uh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur with your art, you have to be uh, at least open to great discomfort. Um, You have to, Be willing to actually sell stuff, sell your art, to ask people to buy it. We didn't necessarily use that phrase, but we danced all around it. People need to consume your art and you have to be comfortable asking them to do it. You need to patchwork together uh, different ways to make money. And the mindset that that will require is an openness to what comes your way. So this is my final question for you, uh, answer the question and then just launch right into telling people where they can find you. Um, but for you, what does openness look like? And, and also where is the strangest place that you've gotten the opportunity to use some of your skills at art to make money is openness. just like a metaphorical. What does openness mean to me? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, how, how have you practiced it in your life? Cause I know, I know both of us in the arts, you have to sometimes like, it doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like to have an opportunity. Um, And if you're closed and you say like the only thing, um, in fact, I'll borrow a religious metaphor um, since we, we both have that background. There's that joke about the guy whose boat breaks and he says, God, please uh, rescue me. And and a little while later, a boat comes by and, and the person's like, here, get in. And he's like, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then a while later, another (laughs) boat comes along and, and they're like, here, get in. And he said, no, 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 I'm waiting for God to rescue me. The third time boat comes by, He says, no, he shortly after that drowns. And in heaven, um, he's talking to God and God is like, I sent three boats, dummy. You know, so this is the idea. I'm being a little bit joking about that, although it is sort of funny in its way Um, (laughs) is openness looks different. If you think that you're going to get a six figure publishing deal, for example, and that's the only thing you're open to, this is going to be a grind. I promise you, but um, finance for your projects can come from some strange places. And I just want to hear kind of your mindset on that and maybe where the weirdest places that that you got that opportunity. What can I learn from it? I am a life lifelong learner.
1: And this is the reason everything, like you said, I'm the blueprint for everything, which I'm going to totally use that for now on. Cause I think that that is the perfect way to describe me. Uh, What can I learn from doing this? What can I learn from creating? What can I learn from putting it out? What is the, what, Anything, it doesn't matter. Uh, Everything is all about what can I learn? Because all I can take with me for all I know is what I've learned. We don't know what comes after life, if anything at all. We sure shit know that we can't take our art with us, but we can take what we, if there's something, we can at least take what we learned from creating it. And so again, I always go to the big picture, the philosophical picture of reality. If there's anything. And I'm skeptical that there is, but if there's anything beyond life, the only thing we can take with us is what we learned by creating it. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's that. That's what I'm open to. And where can people find uh, your, your artwork? So uh, I have, you know, like everyone else on this podcast, I have an Amazon authors page where all my imprint books are available. Uh, I have two films streaming on Amazon prime and a few other platforms uh, Fractals and Death and Life, which are sister art house films. And they're about the art life and sort of coming to terms with a world hostile to the arts. Uh, all of these links, all of these pages you can find through my website,
0: Eric ericnorcross.com. Perfect. I will link to your website and any other interesting things I find as I am deep diving into you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now.